But the book of Jonah is a really cool thing because the book of Jonah, in my opinion, does a great job of teaching us that the Bible is not just the Old Testament and the New Testament where the New Testament is fun and loving and God is kind and compassionate and the Old Testament God is like mean and angry and vengeful and never the twain shall meet. But instead, the book of Jonah shows us the unity of the Bible, but it also provides a key to unlocking a lot of these issues, and it provides a key for us to understand the whole narrative of Scripture in a very interesting way. So we're going to discuss it, and we're going to read it like four acts of a movie. There's four chapters in Jonah. We're going to read all four chapters. I'm going to read them each as an act, and then we're just going to talk about them. It plays like a movie, and not only is it a movie, but it is a comedy. This is the height of, of comedy in ancient Jewish practice and thought, okay? The story of Jonah is a comedy, and it ends with a bang. Like, it ends with that sort of um, stinger moment in a funny movie where you're like, I can't believe they did that. That is, that is meant to be hilarious, okay? And so, obviously, anything that's old feels less funny, right? Like, if you watch old Charlie Chaplin's, you're not... You're not maybe your sides aren't splitting, right? Because culture is contextualized uh, humor and comedy is very um, situated in a certain time and place. But you just have to remember, this story was meant to be hilarious, okay? So as we read, hopefully some of this will come through for you. You guys ready for this? Sword drill. Swords up? No, just kidding. None of y'all were ready. You would have failed right there. (laughs) Does anyone remember sword drills? No? It's a Christian, Christian subculture right there for you. <laughs> the Bible is metaphorically compared to a sword, and therefore when you do a sword drill, you check how many people have brought their swords with them to the gathering. That's, everyone raises their Bible, and then on the count of three, they all quickly flip to the bright page, and then they read from there. All right, so I'm, I won the sword drill, just so you know. <laughs> Jonah, chapter one, verse one. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down to go into it with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laid down, and fallen asleep. (laughs) So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you were sleeping? Get up, call upon your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish." Each man said to his mate, come, let us cast lots so that we can learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened and they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. So he said to them, What should we do to you so that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on the account of me this storm has come upon you. 
However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier. They called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man, and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, has done as you pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men, offered, then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Act 1. The world saves Jonah. They figure out that it's Jonah's sin that has brought about the storm. And they act on behalf of a judgmental and retributive God. And they decide to very reluctantly put Jonah to death by throwing him into the ocean. Now, Jonah's complicit in this, right? Because Jonah says, honestly, guys, you're not going to be able to solve this problem because I created it with my disobedience. God is clearly against what I have done. So throw me into the ocean and the storm will stop. And they go, surely there's a way we can do this without having to kill you. But it turns out there isn't. They can't make it back to land. So the world Jonah is called to save throws him to his death. And Jonah thinks he's being condemned to death by the storm of an angry retributive God who is punishing him for his disobedience. There are a lot of people in the church. There are a lot of people in the world. And there are a lot of people in the Bible and throughout history who believe in the kind of God who would punish your disobedience with a storm that would lead to your death. Jonah was one of them. The people on the boat reluctantly would be included in that. And they think that they're killing Jonah, but actually, they're saving him. Here's why. Verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. At that point of the children's story, Avai and I go, gulp, and we act like a big fish has swallowed us. Sometimes we get under the blankets and we pretend. Three days and three nights. It's really important to me that we read Scripture in light of Christ. Because Jesus is the truest story that makes sense of all the other stories. What I don't want to do is I don't want to read the story of Jonah. And I don't want the, the story of Jonah or the story of Moses or the story of anyone else to tell me about Jesus. I want the story of Jesus to tell me about those other stories. The Bible is all about Jesus. So who else had an experience that lasted three days and three nights? The, the answer is Jesus. No one, no one said it. The sword drill sucked. Nobody's raising their hand. It's a good thing this isn't Sunday school class because y'all would not be getting a gold star. I just have to tell you. No. <laughs> okay, Act 2. Act 2. Jonah repents and changes his mind. 
Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out in my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depths of Sheol, hell in some translations. You heard my voice, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All of your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look toward your holy temple. I guess in the, in the belly of the fish. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Here's what Jonah discovers in the belly of a fish. Jonah discovers that salvation is from the Lord. Jonah discovers that God is not the God who puts to death the disobedient. But he's the God who will send miraculous circumstances to save the disobedient from their death. So that even in the depths of Sheol, again, in other places of the Bible, Sheol is translated hell. It would be, I'm just telling you, it would be hell to be in the belly of a fish. I found out in preparing for this sermon that the stomach of a whale, the digestive tract, at its thinnest place is only four inches across. That's why they just eat plankton. So if it, was a, if it was a whale, it would have to be supernatural the way the whale swallowed him because you can't get your, your hand into a whale's mouth, even the big ones, past your elbow without getting stuck, okay? So let's not pretend this is some like cavern, cavernous opening that's like dry and like he's got a candle in there, you know, there's like a table. It's not like that, okay? <laughs> he's in stomach juices. He's right to say, hey God, this is hell, but you are the one who saves me from hell. <laughs> it's funny because Jonah is sent with a task to bring a message of repentance to Nineveh because Nineveh is wicked. And in the depths of his despair, in the lowest part of his story, he's literally <laughs> trapped in the stomach of a fish. It's Jonah who has to repent. It's Jonah who has to change his mind. Now, why did Jonah run away? And why does Jonah have to change his mind? Because Jonah worships a God who he believes is about retribution, is about punishing and destroying the wicked. And Jonah wants to see the wicked destroyed. So he does not want to preach to the Ninevites because he wants to see the Ninevites destroyed. And then when Jonah gets thrown into the water, he thinks to himself, God has condemned me to death, but at least I don't have to go to Nineveh. And when the fish swallows Jonah... And he realizes that he can't even escape his calling by death. He also realizes God isn't the way I thought he was. 
The story isn't over. Act three. God uses Jonah to save the world around him. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and with ashes, and he issued a proclamation and said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. This does not go the way Jonah hopes or expects. One day into a three-day journey, he basically says the message of God once, and everybody turns on a dime and gives themselves to this God that Jonah is proclaiming. He is remarkably effective at what he has done. Here is the fascinating thing about this story. Many fascinating things are contained in this story, but one of them is that so many matters in Jonah's life compare to the gospel stories of Jesus. Obviously, Jesus died and rose again after three days. Uh, Jesus even compares himself to Jonah. He says, no sign will be given to you but the sign of Jonah, which we might have time to talk about in a little bit. But Jonah also says at the end of his prayer, salvation is from the Lord. In John chapter 4, Jesus is compelled to go through Samaria. And remember, Samaria is where Jews and Gentiles have interbred and intermingled. So these are the bastards to the traditional Jewish people. These are the, these are the unclean, unwashed people. They're even worse than the Gentiles because they represent compromise, okay? So there's overt and explicit racism towards the Samaritans. And then the Samaritans have responded with their own overt racism back towards the Jews. And they have this competition. The Samaritans worship on the mountain and the Jews worship at the temple. But the Jews will not let the Samaritans worship on the mountain. So the Samaritans won't let the Jews, or sorry, the Jews won't let the Samaritans worship at the temple. So the Samaritans do the same right back to the Jews. And Jesus goes where he's not supposed to be to a woman he's not supposed to talk to. And he tells her everything she's ever done. Not to shame her, but to let her know that he is, in her words, a prophet. And what does she say? She says, Rabbi, I know that the Jews say we should worship at the temple. And the Gentile, or sorry, the Samaritans say we should worship on the mountain. And what do you say? And Jesus, of course, says, the time is coming where the people who follow God faithfully won't worship on the, temp or on the mountain or in the temple, but they'll worship in spirit and in truth. And then Jesus says something that's so fascinating that's connected to this story, okay? He says, you worship what you do not know as a Samaritan. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. 
Now, in my Bible, that word from in John chapter 4 is underlined. Here's the reason why. Because a good Jewish person did not think salvation was from them. They thought salvation was for them. Here's the reason why Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is a wicked place that's outside of Israel and therefore outside of the covenant. This isn't God's people. This isn't God's business. These are the wicked reprobates that deserve God's judgment. If Jonah had been called to the good people of Israel, to the chosen tribes, Jonah would probably be very happy with his destiny. But instead, God calls Jonah to the unwashed masses and puts a finger on the bruise of Jonah's racism. So when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, he says, salvation is from the Jews. This is so, so important. Because the Jewish people thought that salvation was for them, but God never saved them for themselves. He saved them so that they could release salvation to the nations of the world. So every time you see in the Bible Israel going to kill the damned, when you see Israel going to wage war against God's enemies, you have to see them in a profound form of compromise because they are murdering the people they were supposed to be saving. God called them to be separate and distinct, not so that they could be uh, redeemed at the expense of everyone else, but so that their holiness could invite them into relationship with everyone else, so that a healed nation could heal the nations. But they thought that salvation was for them instead of from them. But here's the crazy thing. Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. So Jesus seems to believe, hey, even though you don't fully understand God and you are uh, worshiping blindly, God still accepts your worship. We, we Jews, we know what we're doing. We have the message made very clear. You Samaritans, you've been excluded. You've been ostracized. So you're stuck worshiping what you do not know. Let me ask you a question. How many people are worshiping a God they do not yet know? I just thought you'd think about that. I don't, I don't know exactly how to answer that question. I just know that Jesus seems to think that this, Samaritan's woman, this Samaritan woman's worship was respected and honored by God. Now, here's the, here's the crazy thing about this story. This, this part of the story just blows my mind, okay? My mind is just in a million pieces. Every time we read this story in this little kid's book, we get to this part where the big fish swallows Jonah, and then Jonah goes, blah, and the, the, kid, the illustrator has him like flying onto this beach, right? Every time, I'm just getting rocked. And if I was like, oh, that's so funny and fun, and I'm like, yeah, but my mind is being blown. Here's the mind-blowing thing about this story, okay? Here's the reason why it's a big fish story. The Assyrians honored a god named Dagon. I might be pronouncing this wrong. The Assyrians, along with the Philistines and several other ancient peoples, honored a god named Dagon. Some scholars believe that the Ninevites would have worshipped Dagon as their primary god. So have you ever wondered why, in chapter 3, the first time Jonah says anything, it seems like everybody repents? I did. 
And here's the crazy thing. Dagon is the fish god. He's got the head of a fish, the body of a man. Where has Jonah just spent three days? Imagine you worship the fish god. Come into a building like this, and there's a big stone carving of a, a merman. <laughs> we all worship the merman. We're super happy about the merman. And then imagine you're on the beach after church, after lifting up praises to the merman. You know inside your spirit something is not fully right with your society. You know that your world is broken. You wish it would be better, and you wish your God would speak to you. And then, out from the ocean, a big fish surfaces and spits out a dude. <laughs> a dude who says, I have a message from God. <laughs> if you've spent your whole life worshiping the fish God... Are you going to listen to the guy who got spit out by a giant fish? See, this is the mind-blowing thing. Jonah rebels against God. He's disobedient, and he thinks this God of judgment is going to judge me, and I am going to be condemned to hell. But instead, God uses Jonah's disobedience to become the miracle that releases other people to change their way of thinking. See, Jonah thought he'd failed. Jonah thought he deserved hell. And he was right on both counts. But here's the wild thing that God does. God takes our brokenness. He takes our failure. And if we let him, he uses it to be the very testimony that releases other people into freedom. And when the world around us is worshiping whatever sort of gods and goddesses they want to worship. Some people worship money. Some people worship sex. Some people worship power. Some people worship mermen, mer-ladies. <laughs> I'm sure there, you, you can find pretty much anything on the internet. Like if you just Google like merman worship, don't do it. But if you did, I'm sure you'd find at least a dozen people who were like getting together on a Saturday afternoon in a park, probably San Francisco, doing some weird dancing. And here's the crazy thing. In order to reach those people, God speaks the language they already know. <laughs> He comes into their faith and into their rituals, and he brings his prophet in their format so that they have no choice but to listen to him. So when Jonah opens his mouth and says, the God who made everything has sent me to tell you to repent, they're like, we better get our crap together, quickly. Everybody's fasting, even the cows and the sheep. They got to fast too. Jonah's like, I did not expect this to go this well. Joe's like, I must be a pretty good preacher. Smell a little like fish, though, but they don't seem to mind. It's not on Jonah. The weight isn't on his shoulders. The power is in the miracle that God provided when he turned Jonah's disobedience into a testimony. It's interesting that Jonah got the call a second time. So it seems to me like God, once the, jo once the fish spit Jonah up on the shore... God still respects Jonah's freedom enough to ask him to partner with his calling. 
He could have run away again, and I have a feeling that he would have just gotten swallowed by another fish. (laughs) But Jonah is obedient. He goes to Nineveh. Nineveh repents, and a pagan, wicked city is saved in a single day because God transforms obedience, disobedience into a testimony. Now, here's the twist. Act 4 is the stinger. Act 4 is where the comedy really gets good, okay? And we're going to pause in the middle of the reading because I have to kind of break it into two parts. See, if I wrote this story, I would end at chapter 3. It's like, hooray! Jonah did it. Everybody's saved. But this is not how God ends the story. This is not how the writer of the book of Jonah ends the story. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord God and said, Please, Lord, was not what I said while I was... Sorry, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this... I fled to Tarshish, for I knew, this is so important, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Jonah again, struggling with the suicidal tendencies. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? So now the matter is fully exposed. Jonah has repented about what he believes about God, but he still not let go of his prejudices. What we discover with prejudice is that it's actually when a group that has been disadvantaged or a people that has been marginalized gets rights and freedoms and opportunities, it's actually the blessing that brings the ugly stuff to the surface. God doesn't have curses within him to give to you. He only has a heart of love and compassion toward you. He sends the fish to swallow you even as you try to destroy yourself. But it's when the blessing comes that some of the deeper ugliness of the heart emerges. So Jonah finally plays all of his cards. He says, the reason why I didn't want to go in the first place is I didn't want you to save those people. One of the things we discover about believing in a merciful, compassionate, gracious God. See, (laughs) it's easy when you believe in a vindictive, violent, retributive God because you are more merciful than he is. Think about the people who are on the boat with Jonah. They're going, oh God, please don't destroy us for this guy's sin. They're trying to figure out a way to save him. They think Jonah's God wants to destroy him. And they're like, man, we got to figure out a way to save Jonah. And if we can't save Jonah, at least save ourselves. That whole presupposition is built around the idea that you are more merciful than God is. Think about the Christian who begs and pleads with God to heal their loved one of cancer. Oh God, please. He's been so good. He's gone to church. The reason why that prayer is broken is not only does it do a disservice to who God is, but it comes from a place of believing that you are standing before the creator of the universe and you have a more merciful heart than he does. You could never want someone to be healed more than God does. You could never love 
a loved one more than he loves them. But what happens when the, when the script gets flipped and God now is the merciful one, we discover our prejudices because we go, I didn't actually want you to save those people. I didn't want you to redeem them. And so it's funny and sad, but also darkly comic, that when we create a culture where we believe in mercy and compassion and forgiveness and second chances and third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances and sixth chances and 49th chances, that the people who gather with us start to get more and more uncomfortable. You start to pay a, pr a heavy price to believe in a God of love and mercy. Isn't it weird? Jesus comes on the scene. He declares that he is the son of God. And he declares that his heavenly father has sent him with a message of love. And three years later, they kill him. Love is not controversial when it's tasteless and bland. But when love reaches out to the enemy, to the other, to the excluded to the judged, suddenly the people who have been hurt and wounded realize they can't carry their unforgiveness and judgment anymore and they want to destroy the person who represents mercy. Like what about when love forgives serial killers? I had this conversation with someone after I preached and talked about how Jeffrey Dahmer the, the serial killer who ate people confessed Christ and was baptized as a Christian in the last six months of his life. Before he could be executed for his crimes, the other prisoners killed him. He confessed Jesus after the trial. This wasn't some last-ditch attempt to get lesser sentence. There was no lesser sentence for him. I said... According to the pastors who met with him, his faith was sincere. Someone said, you believe God could forgive a man like Jeffrey Dahmer? I said, yeah. Yeah, because he took that sin upon himself. Jesus took ownership of what Jeffrey Dahmer did on the cross. Jesus says, this is mine. And he alone, in eternity, gets to judge the living and the dead. He alone gets to bring the victim and the victimizer together as the lion lays down with the lamb. But this person said to me, if you believe in a God who can forgive Jeffrey Dahmer, I don't think I would want to spend eternity with a God like that. There it is. That's how you end up trapped in the belly of the big fish. That's how you end up in your own self-inflicted hell. When you refuse to let go of your judgment, and when you refuse to trust yourself to a God who is more merciful than you are. Now, here's the, here's the next crazy thing. <laughs> this story is just filled with so many intricate, powerful, beautiful moments. Jonah says to God, he says, I knew that you were gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and that you would relent concerning calamity. Do you know where he gets that line? If you want to know, because I did. It's Exodus 34. Now, next to Jesus, perhaps the most important person in the Bible is Moses. 
He established the covenant guidelines for God's relationship with his chosen people, Israel. So when we're talking about the kind of voice that gets to determine for a group of people over history what God is like, Moses is a very, very big deal. It's not just like asking your neighbor Steve what he thinks about God, okay? Steve is great. I want to know his opinions. But Moses is a very, very big deal. One of the reasons why the Jews, one of the reasons why the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus was because they said he was putting his word above Moses' word. Okay? This is what Moses says in Exodus. Did I say this? Exodus 34, and it's verse 7. I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to go a little bit back. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. So what does Moses say about God? Moses says, God is merciful and gracious to some, but to the guilty, he won't just punish them. He'll punish their children. He'll punish their grandchildren all the way down to the third and fourth generation. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Does that sound like the merciful Jesus we know and follow? See, this is the reason why this story unlocks so much for us. Because the Bible is not, the Bible is not one voice through 66 books. The Bible is a progression of understanding that leads to the culminating revelation of Jesus as the Word of God. So the Bible is a journey where God accommodates himself. Remember, in order to speak to Nineveh, he sends Jonah in a fish. So, so God proves that he is willing to take on forms and appearances that are less glorious than he really is in order to reach the people who already made up their mind about him. So what does Moses believe about God? Moses believes that the good get blessed and the evil get punished. Not just them, but their children and their children's children and their children's children's children. But by the time you get to Jonah, a new idea has been awakened. Jonah is suspicious of something. He doesn't like it. He doesn't want it. But deep down he knows, I knew you were better than Moses said you were. Deep down I knew that even evil, ugly, dirty people get the same blessing as the righteous. So the Bible is no longer a flat text where you can just pick a verse from anywhere and say, well, I guess this is true about God. The Bible is a journey of understanding where we are watching people become awakened to the truth, to the reality of who God really is. And if you stop at Moses and you say, well, God punishes people, he punishes their children and their children's children, you go, oh man, you know, it makes sense that he's an alcoholic, his dad was an alcoholic, he's probably just, he's probably just struggling with the same demon. See, that's the kind of judgment that partners with Moses but isn't following Jesus. 
And in my opinion, it's a, it's a horrible misreading of the text. You can't stop somewhere in the middle of the journey and say, well, this is what's true about God. You have to, in light of Christ and in, in, in light of him being the answer, you have to read backwards and you have to go, wait a minute, Moses said you judged people down the generations, but Jonah was suspicious of the truth that even the worst people get mercy and compassion. Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. He made a shelter for himself and sat under the shade so he could see what happened in the city. So he built himself a covering. And Jonah was, or sorry. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head and deliver him from his discomfort. So clearly Jonah really sucks at building a shelter (laughs) for himself. A roof is like a good start from the sun when you're in the desert. He forgot that for some reason. God has a plant grow up supernaturally over his head, and it says Jonah's extremely happy. He's just, he's just a pretty peach. He just loves the fact that he now has some shade. He's going to sit there and watch what God does. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, do you have any reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand, as well as many animals? The end. What a story. Jonah sits outside of the city, content with his judgment. He's repented enough to go and tell them the message, but he's not repented enough to let go of his prejudices. And he sits there waiting and hoping that God will go back on his word and murder all these people. And, and you know what God does to that judgmental, bitter Jonah? Gives him a little supernatural shade. Covers his head with a big leaf so he doesn't get a sunburn. See, even in Jonah's judgment and misery, God is good to him. And then when God allows the plant to die, what is God doing? Is God taking it out on Jonah? No, he's trying to bring Jonah to a deeper repentance. He's trying to wake him up to this idea You didn't do anything to deserve this plant, and I was still good to you. How much more do I care about wicked people who have broken uh, the world around them, but don't know what they're doing? What did Jesus say on the cross as he forgave all humanity for all human history? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they're doing. I used to think that Jesus was pleading with an angry, judgmental God who wanted to murder all of us. I now realize Jesus was representing the same compassionate God who has always wanted to save all of us. Because in the end, even at our worst, when we're doing the very worst thing possible, which is murdering love, he says, you don't really get what you're doing. You don't really understand. You thought the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would wake you up, but it actually blinded you. 
You thought you could know the difference between right and wrong, but you don't. And ultimately, I don't hold you responsible. I will take responsibility for your sin. This is why we've created a culture where we want, we actually want the very worst people to hang out with us. And we want to go to them and hang out with them. And if I'm going to be judged for anything, I want to be judged for not being judgmental enough. I want to be condemned for hanging out with the worst kind of people that others want to see destroyed. And when I hear about Christians who say, Las Vegas is going to be judged. California is going to fall off in the ocean. God is a holy God and only Trump can save us. When I hear that stuff, I go, you've totally misread the Bible. You're not serving the God you think you're serving. Because he's better than that. And Jonah figured it out like a thousand years ago. (laughs) And he hated it. He hated it. But it was still true. God was still compassionate and merciful. And you have to understand that every time I face brokenness in the world around me, and every time other people hurt me, the judgment in me rises up to the surface. Because I go, I know God is good, but I really want them to get what's coming to them. Have you ever had this happen? You're driving on the highway, and someone passes you, and you might be speeding a little bit, but they're speeding a lot. And your speed is the right speed, but their speed is dangerous. And you find yourself thinking in your head, I hope a cop is right behind them. Is that just me? I'm like looking around like, where's the cop? Where's the cop? And I'm so excited. I'm like perversely excited like, oh, red and blues. Ha ha. Guess you're going to learn your lesson. See, this thing is in all of us. We talk this way and it's like, yeah, God is loving and compassionate and merciful. And then we turn around and judge the Pharisees in our life. The miserable people on Facebook who want to debate and judge and make the rest of us feel sad on the inside. I do. The truth of the matter is we're all a little bit like Jonah. We're all a little bit trying to remove ourselves from the mess of the world. And God is still providing shade above our heads. We think sometimes that we're going to watch him bring judgment and desolation when in reality he's just going to bring mercy. And that's only going to expose the prejudice and the brokenness in us. So God uses a judgmental, somewhat racist, very backwards thinking Jonah to save an entire city of people. Almost without his help. (laughs) He basically says yes once and then he just opens his mouth and everything else happens for him. And this means God can use you too. I want you to be awakened to the mercy of God. Because whatever we talk about, whether we talk about the end times or whether we talk about how to read scripture in light of the accommodating revelation of Christ or whether we talk about hot button issues like abortion and homosexuality and uh, the debt load of the nations and politics and peacemaking and all these different topics, these things that have big implications for our world and for our personal lives, we have to remember God is on a journey leading us into greater and greater awareness of his mercy. And the reason why the story stops mid-sentence is because the story is left with us. Are we going to continue down the suspicious thread of unraveling the mercy of God? Or are we going to huff and puff and close our hearts in judgment? 
The story stops mid-sentence because in some ways Jonah is still sitting on the outside of Nineveh waiting for the city to be destroyed. And God wants to ask you and I the same question. Do you you have a right to your anger? Do you have a right to your judgment? Like, that family member that you can't stand, that you just wish you could just slap in the face, do, do you have a right to your judgment? Like, are you, are you right to feel that way about them? That resentment that's really unforgiveness in disguise, do you, do you have a right to hold on to that? Is it, is it really okay? Or is it killing you? I know there are many ways to read the Bible, and there are many ways to come to conclusions about what God is like. But I'd like to suggest to you that the story of Jonah is redemptive and instructive because it teaches us that God is always, always better than we think. And if he's better than we think, we should change the way we think. And once we've changed the way we think, He's still better than the way we think. So we're going to have to change the way we think. And then life as a Christian is not about saving the world first and foremost. Life as a Christian is actually about seeing God save us. And it just so happens that as he saves us, in the way that he saves us, he saves other people. (laughs) Like every time we throw ourselves in the water like, well, I guess I'm done. I guess I'm just terrible at finances. I'm in all this debt. Might as well just drown myself in more. Yeah, honey, we're getting the jet ski. (laughs) In some crazy backwards way, God uses the end of our rope to bring us into redemption. If I said to some of you who are in massive debt, if I said, God's going to use you to bring freedom, debt freedom to thousands of people, you'd be like, (laughs) whatever, you're funny. I can't even manage like 10 bucks in my pocket. I spend it before the end of the day. And you're telling me that I'm going to bring people into financial freedom? Yes. Because this is how God transforms the world. He brings broken people into repentance. They see how good he is. And then they discover, oh, he's even, he's even a little better than that. And it's in repenting that the world around them is transformed.